Hello, I'm Chris Williamson, and welcome to this No to NATO, No to War discussion. We're going to be talking about the state of the modern media, the quality of contemporary journalism, and the level of censorship that's being applied in the present era. It's said that the first casualty of war is the truth, and NATO's proxy war in Ukraine is a classic case in point, where the truth about what's really happening in Ukraine has been expunged from the airwaves and erased from the pages of all the corporate media's outlets. The foreign affairs and war correspondents who work for the corporate media these days are a little better than stenographers for NATO. It was Winston Churchill who insisted that, in wartime, truth is so precious that she should always be attended by a bodyguard of lies. Or to put it another way, a bodyguard of liars, made up of corporate media hacks and venal politicians. Julian Assange's proposition was the perfect antidote to Churchill's maxim when he said, if wars can be started by lies, peace can be started by truth. Julian also asked about the average death count for these journalists who peddle the lies to promote and justify war. And that's why he accused them of being war criminals. And that's why Julian's still languishing in Belmarsh prison, awaiting extradition to the United States, where he faces a 175-year jail sentence for exposing war crimes and denouncing the liars who try to cover them up. It's to the eternal shame of the journalistic profession that not only have they been virtually silent about Julian's plight, a number of them have even ridiculed him and peddled lies about him. So as NATO pushes us closer and closer towards World War III, telling the truth has never been more important. That's why I'm delighted to be introducing three tribunes of the truth today, namely George Galloway, Kit Clarenberg and Patrick Henningsen. George hardly needs any introduction. His oratory, his tenacity and his humanity are legendary. He's a leader of the Workers' Party and was a former Labour MP before winning a seat for the Respect Party in the 2005 general election. And seven years later, he secured a famous by-election victory in Bradford. George was the most vocal and articulate opponent of the illegal war in Iraq. And he's one of the most principled people I know. And he's someone who understands and observes the true meaning of solidarity. Kit Clarenberg is an investigative journalist exploring the role of intelligence services in shaping politics and perceptions. He's also the editor of Grey Zone UK and writes for a range of other publications. He was recently detained at Luton Airport and had to endure a lengthy interrogation by counter-terror police about his political views and his reporting for the Grey Zone. He hadn't done anything illegal. He just factually reported on the national security state's own violations of domestic and international law. But as George Orwell said, during times of universal deceit, telling the truth becomes a revolutionary act. And Patrick Henningsen is an author and founder of the independent news and analysis website, 21st Century Wire. He's also an investigative journalist. And I first met him back in 2019 outside Belmarsh Jail, where he spoke out about the outrageous treatment of Julian Assange. George is going to speak first, and he's going to set the scene and say a word or two about another real journalist, Gonzalo Lira, who was arrested and detained last month by Ukraine security services for the heinous crime of reporting the truth from Ukraine. So over to you, George. Thank you very much, Chris, uh, Patrick and Kit and Sean for the uh, technical directorial side of things. I'm very glad to 
joined this meeting and I would first of all like to pay tribute to NOTO-NATO's last public meeting, which by my rough calculation has now been watched by more than 300,000 people. Uh, 300,000 people watching a public meeting is one hell of an audience. In fact, if I'm not wrong, it makes last uh, meeting of no to NATO, no to war, the biggest anti-war meeting since uh, 2003, February 15, the greatest of all political marches of any kind in Britain. Uh, but of course, uh, uh, we failed to stop the war. And so far, we're failing to stop the war in Ukraine. But that won't stop us from trying. Uh, the presence on this platform of uh, very fine uh, journalists and, uh, if you like, counter-current uh, narratives uh, is itself uh, a two-sided coin. We are here because we'll never be on the BBC, uh, but also we're here because it's increasingly less important to be on the BBC. Uh, the, the curve, if you were to draw it, uh, of uh, our non-personhood uh, in so-called mainstream media uh, matches almost perfectly the downward slopes of the curve of the credibility of that mainstream media. And I firmly believe that whilst the, the new world of media is struggling to be born, the old order is uh, very definitely dying. And, of course, to complete the, uh, the triptych, we are uh, definitely living in a time of monsters. But we're also living in the time of very healthy infants. Um, I don't agree with everything Tucker Carlson says by any means, or even 50% actually of what uh, Tucker Carlson says. But the percentage, whatever it is, on which I do agree with them are the most important issues of our time. And he gave birth uh, just last week to his new show. Can't call it a show because Fox News are suing him for breach of contract. Having sacked him, they now want to silence him. But his appearance on Twitter... Uh, in a 10-minute monologue to camera, has drawn possibly the biggest television audience of its kind in television history, uh, rapidly approaching 100 million people on Twitter watched a speech or a monologue uh, by a journalist that was once the most viewed on Fox News, to be sure. But that most viewed was an audience of some 3.5 million, uh, compared to almost 100 million. I predict it will reach 100 million, which tells you something about the medium and the message. The fact that so many people are now uh, tuning into uh, the likes of the mother of all talk shows, my my own show, uh, the week before last, it'll be down this week, waxes and wanes, but it goes between 1 million and 3 million. In fact, the week before last, uh, 
the audience, all or in part, in other words, the whole show or a clip of the show, was watched by 3,028,000 people, uh, which indicates a thirst amongst the public for the truth. Uh, and uh, Chris, you put it very well in your introductory remarks. The, the bodyguard of lies, the bodyguard of liars, as you put it, uh, is thick, of course. It's a thick bodyguard. It is many serried ranks. But people are seeing through those serried ranks in numbers hitherto unprecedented, and we can count them uh, on the view counters of the like of uh, Patrick's uh, show, uh, Kit Clarenberg's appearances, uh, the Grey Zone, the mother of all talk shows. If you were to add up the, if you throw in uh, Russell Brand uh, and others, you are talking mass audiences now for the truth. And that's one of the reasons why the uh, pretense of impartiality, the pretense of freedom of the press is being so, uh, with such gay abandon, tossed overboard by the mainstream media. Once upon a time, they, they tried to disguise their actual role in, uh, in British society, I'm sure also in American society. They pretended to an impartiality that they now no longer pretend. Uh, as I say, none of us will be invited onto the mainstream media. None of us at all. Uh, and if we ever appear in the mainstream media or reported on in the mainstream media, it will be only to give vent to venomous attack, uh, an attack framed by, I use the word advisedly, framed by, uh, the security services and the state. And what happened to Kit Clarenberg uh, has not even been reported in the mainstream media. And yet, it could scarcely be of more grave concern. I mean, it's one thing strangling us on social media. It's one thing putting false labels on us. one thing algorithmically distorting our audience and potential audience. It's another thing when six police officers are waiting for you at the foot of the steps in Luton Airport. Six in a crime wave in London that the Met cannot get to grips with. They spared six of London's finest to meet Kit Clarenberg at the foot of the steps at Luton Airport, and then proceeded to interrogate him, quite illegally in my view, I'm no lawyer, but from what I've read from Kit, of the kind of interrogation, uh, it struck me that it could not possibly be justified, even under the very, very wide rubric of the anti-terrorism laws under which they were, uh, they were interrogating him. I mean, asking a journalist what his views are on Rishi Sunak has to be uh, beyond the scope of the legislation, unless it was your contention that uh, Kit Clarenberg wished some harm 
on Rishi Sunak, which self-evidently he does not. Uh, uh, I doubt if, uh, if Kit had any views on Rishi Sunak. If you ask me my views on him, I I'd, have to, I'd have to look him up to see who he is. Uh, but for a police officer to politically interrogate a journalist, and moreover, a prize-winning journalist, one whose journalism is uh, finding a bigger and bigger readership audience in the world, is a very grave matter. Not quite as grave, of course, as the plight of, uh, of Julian Assange, uh, who I'm losing count of the number of years that Julian has been a prisoner of one kind or another a prisoner of, of first of all, uh, false allegations. And let's not forget, en passant, Chris, if you'll forgive me, uh, those that were in the House of Commons on their feet demanding that Julian Assange be extradited, yes, extradited to Sweden to face what they called uh, serious charges of a sexual nature, charges which were later completely dropped and are now utterly discredited. Uh, but uh, starting then, until now, Julian has effectively been a prisoner. The world's greatest journalist, a prisoner. Where? In England, which is never done telling people how it is even prepared to go to war for freedom for the freedoms that our forefathers and mothers struggled for in times gone by and defended in the teeth of, of Nazi fascist tyranny that was once just 28 miles from our coast. So we are in, uh, as Charles Dickens uh, put it, it is the best of times and it is the worst of times. We are living in a tale of two verses, two dimensions, one of which is dark indeed, but the other uh, is increasingly bright. I'd only add one thing before contributing to the discussion with the others, uh, and it is uh, this. The recent explosion, we can now say for certain it was an explosion uh, at the Karkova Dam, has certainly brought out the worst in, the, in our leaders and illuminated something they would much rather have kept in the shadow. First of all, it illuminates the absolute step in which they march the concept uh, in which they all perform their parts. It illustrates how we haven't Brexited at all, how British foreign policy is absolutely identical to uh, European Union foreign policy, except where it is even worse. And it illustrates that our political leaders and on my own show on Sunday night, I on Wednesday night rather, last, I, I singled out James Cleverly because I saw his comment 
there may have been others. James cleverly lied through his teeth as the Foreign Secretary of Britain when he said that Russia had blown up the Kharkov Dam. This allegation will fare no better than the allegation that Russia blew up the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, an allegation which is no longer made, which has now been dropped. Even the United States agencies, through their agents in the New York Times and the like, uh, make it clear that it was not Russia, but they say uh, Ukraine, which blew up the Nord Stream pipelines. This allegation about the Kharkov Dam will not fare better than the original allegation that Russia blew up the Nord Stream, or that Putin flew a drone into the Kremlin, practically into his own bedroom. Nobody makes that allegation anymore. So we're left with only one of two uh, possible conclusions. One is that James Cleverly is not very cleverly, or that James Cleverly is a liar, a brazen, open liar, in a lie that will quickly be seen to be a lie by the great majority of our public. Thanks for allowing me these uh, opening remarks. I hear, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing the other statements and, as I say, participating in the discussion. Thanks very much, George. Just before I bring in uh, Kit, though, um, I wonder whether you might just say a word or two about Gonzalo Lira, who has appeared on your show on a number of occasions, and as I was saying in the introduction there, has been arrested by the Ukraine security services. I think it was on the, on the 1st of May. Um, I mean, he's been a, a beacon of truth uh, right in the heart of, of Ukraine. Um, in many ways, I was surprised, he, you know, not, there had not been action taken against him sooner. But, I mean, are you concerned about his fate, George? Yes, I am. Uh, and I'm concerned that uh, Kit Clarenberg, too, uh, having been a guest on our show, uh, fell into the uh, hands of the Metropolitan Police. Uh, Gonzalo Lira uh, has suffered a fate far, far worse uh, even than Kit's, in that we now have no sight of or knowledge of where and how Gonzalo Lira is. Now, I, I have very profound disagreements uh, with Gonzalo Lira on, on many things. Uh, but his truth-telling from the front line uh, in Kharkov, in Ukraine, has been of enormous importance. And even if one disagrees with the conclusions he draws from the reporting that he has done, you'd have to be a pretty sinister person to want to see him led off with machine guns pointed at his head by the uh, SBU, the secret security uh, forces of the Zelensky regime in Kiev. We had his father on the show, a very eloquent 80-year-old man, uh, movingly described how neither Gonzalo's family, children, nor his 
father have any knowledge as to whether or not he is still alive and if he is still alive, if he is being tortured, where he is being held. And the American embassy, which has consular responsibility, duty to Gonzalo, because he is, of course, an American citizen, was born in America, is a citizen of America by birth, are virtually completely ignoring uh, the appeals of his family for knowledge. So, yes, indeed, Gonzalo Lira uh, has to be added to the litany of uh, these uh, casualties uh, of mm -hmm. truth uh, that you described, Chris, right at the beginning. Yeah. Well, I mean, our thoughts are with Gonzalo, obviously, and his family. Let, let me uh, bring in Kit now. Uh, thank you very much indeed for, for joining us this evening, Kit, uh, particularly after that awful ordeal that you had to undergo at Luton Airport last week. I wonder whether you might just say a little bit about your work and uh, speak about, if you feel able, uh, your recent experiences at the hands of the Metropolitan Police. Yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, the two are obviously inextricably linked. Um, I mean, I, 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 th I think that my experience um, yeah, on the 17th of May, it speaks to how dangerous it is to challenge uh, ascendant NATO, uh, British and American narratives on what's happening in Ukraine. Um, I have never, ever, um, at least you know, to my knowledge, um, spoken out in favour of war in my life um, you know i have never ever cheered um the uh the murder of civilians or the destruction of infrastructure or or you know uh the the the, the slaughter of, of soldiers on either side it we are entering a very very dangerous period in time i've never the information space has never been so weaponized as it is now uh it's it's, it's quite remarkable and i think that this has implications for all of us um, it, it really does. And, you know, anyone voicing any degree of scepticism or cynicism of, or criticism about what's happening in Ukraine, um, uh, you know, it, dissenting from mainstream um, government approved narratives is in very serious danger. Um, you know, not just of, of social media censorship and, um, uh, you, know, you know, online ostracism, but, you know, potential arrest. Um, and uh, or, or at the very least surveillance and harassment by authorities. I mean, the, you bear in mind that the overwhelming majority of the questions that I was asked by um, uh, police when I was stopped for five um, godless hours at Luton Airport were related to my thoughts on the war in Ukraine, um, you know, my, my thoughts on the Russian government, my thoughts on on the Ukrainian government. Yes. And Rishi Sunak, um, as George pointed out, I mean, I had to respond that what well, he doesn't make me think, um, you know, he's just another puppet in a in a, a, a overly expensive suit. But the, yeah, the, 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 we, we are now, um, you know, in, in, in a context where voicing any dissenting opinion is legitimately dangerous. Um, yeah, we we might not be subject to you know the full blown Belmarsh treatment, a la like poor Julian, um, you know. Um, uh, I, I, but you know, the, 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 there is a almost a kind of 1984 chilling effect 
um, the, the, you know, the, the, the results. I mean, you know, as Orwell wrote, um, you didn't know whether a telescreen was watching you, but you had to act, did act as if you were being watched um, at any given time. I know a large number of people who are genuinely frightened, you know, they live all over the West, of voicing, um, uh, you know, anti-war, anti-proxy war, um, you know, um, anti-escalation opinions, because not just because of, you know, social or professional ostracism, but because they genuinely fear that they'll get visited by police. Um, you know, it, 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 it's quite extraordinary how quickly and how subtly we've reached this point. Um, I don't think there's any coming back. I think that as you know, we, we, there are reports of uh, the Ukrainian counteroffensive having commenced at long last. Um, you know, after lots of you know pressure and bullying, um, you know, in 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 the in the Western mainstream press, it doesn't seem to be going very well. Uh, a large number of uh, Ukrainians, you know, largely conscripts, you know, dragged from classrooms in the street and nightclubs and skiing resorts um, to, you know, to, to face this relentless onslaught of Russian artillery um, are being killed in large numbers. The, the Western supplied vehicles and weaponry is being destroyed um, systematically. Um, it, it, we are heading towards a potentially catastrophic defeat, not just for Ukraine, but for NATO. And in that context, power is going to need someone to blame and you know the the, the easiest people to blame will be the anti-war anti-imperial pacifists who all along have been saying this is this is awful and we need to stop it uh so yeah um you know the, 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 the there is a national security bill uh, which has already headed through Parliament and is ready to be, is ready to become you know, codified legislation, which would apply the same kind of rules and standards, if you can even call them that, that I was held under at Luton Airport to the entire population. So when I when I was um, ho hoovered up by the goon squad um, at Luton, I was given a bit of paper that said, well, you're not under arrest and you're not under suspicion of having committed a crime. However, uh, this means that you do not have the right to silence and you face arrest for not answering questions or not handing over the pin codes to your SIM cards or your bank cards or your um, memory or your phone or your tablet. Uh, you know, just absolutely shocking stuff from the country that invented the right to silence, you know? And so th this is going to apply it more, what the, the same precepts more widely. Um, in, again, the devil's in the detail. Um, on one, in one section of the, the, the various pamphlets on my, um, my glorious detention I was handed, it stated that um, I have been held because they suspect I might be a state threat acting on behalf of a hostile foreign power. And, and it added in parentheses, um, for th this test to be met, an individual does not have to be knowingly or wittingly assisting a foreign power. And that foreign power does not need either to know that this person is acting on their behalf. It's quite some conspiracy when the two conspirators do not know they are working together. You know, I mean, and, and, and that, you know, that is the you know, non-existent bar for someone being investigated, being arrested, being questioned about their political views. I was I was grilled at length. I, it, it felt like a, the most unpleasant job interview or first day I've ever been on with two um, detectives whose names I couldn't learn. They, they, they referred to each other by their call signs asking me how it on earth it was that I got into doing what what I do um, you know leaping from studying politics at university to national security reporting is actually you know not that that much of a vaunt but in their minds it was and I have to justify that and I of course 
in the weeks since then, I have been laying awake at night thinking, well, I mean, you know, were they trying to probe whether I was recruited at some point by a foreign intelligence agency or some kind of, um, you know, hostile foreign actor? Uh, you know, did that convince them? Are they grilling into this now? Am I going to be dragged up on, oh, you sent this person this sum of money or you received this sum of money from this person, you know, five years ago? What was the purpose of that? Um, yeah, like, you know, we are already there. And as I say, I think that in the, the in the event of a catastrophic defeat for Ukraine, which does seem you know increasingly inevitable and likely, they are the the, the, the Western powers are going to want to control the narrative and suppress inconvenient facts even more. The present media narrative, which the grey zone has, just by pure token of factual reporting, done so much to shatter that Ukraine is this virgin, innocent, liberal democracy, which has been you know for no reason other than kind of Bond villain-esque Machiavellian bloodlust invaded by the evil Russians, um, you know, and uh, Britain and America as uh, believers in the international rules-based order um, and, uh, you know, supporting, small, um, you know, young fledgling democracies is assist is uh, providing with the arsenal necessary to, you know, defend their lands and their rights and their freedom. I mean, it is intelligence insultingly blatantly false on its face, but they are reporting death that and, and another thing I'll add as well is you know it's it, it, propaganda is not only about what you are told it's what you're not told right so I was asked in my interview do you not see how your reporting might be in the public interest but it's not uh, sorry it might be interesting to the public but it's not um, in the public interest right um, and they asked whether I felt that I was you know furthering Russian war aims and, and undermining British national security by reporting on what I've reported on um, uh, you know a, a, a laughable proposition but 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 made all the more perverse by the fact that the gray zone is the only um, English language outlet as far as I can see which has consistently warned um, English language readers that this conflict this proxy war, is going to create a huge amount of blowback, which puts Europe and North America at huge risk of mm -hmm. mass casualty terrorist attacks carried out by neo-Nazi forces. Okay, so in late 2022, the British Parliament's Intelligence and Security Committee published a report which stated openly, and it was heavily redacted, but you can very easily fill in the blanks, that there was a huge risk of returning fighters from Ukraine um, who had fought alongside far-right forces carrying out terrorist attacks, and there was no mechanism in place to monitor these people upon return. Um, you know, it was sounding the alarm then, ignored by the media. In at the start of this year, two members of Atomwaffen, a, far, a fascist neo-Nazi terror group, which openly calls for insurrection and reaction against the, the American government, two of its leading members who had trained alongside Ukraine's notorious neo-Nazi Azov battalion, were jailed for plotting terror attacks against electricity infrastructure in Baltimore. This is a majority black city, um, not that far from Washington, D.C., funnily enough. And they specifically were doing this because they wanted to deprive the city of heat and light during a very harsh winter, you know, in the hope that this would, would uh, uh, cost lives, right? And this was ignored by the Biden administration. Not a single official commented on it. 
and the and we here at the gray zone with our limited staff and limited resources are warning people that it's a matter of when not if that there is a mass shooting or a bombing attack my, my good friend and colleague alex rubenstein last year reported on on um an, an italian media investigation into how an as of linked neo-nazi cell near naples had planned to burst into a shopping center and open fire on shoppers um had planned to um you know carry out bombings on civilian targets this got zero coverage in the western media because yes it messes with it it, it fundamentally undermines the narrative we are there warning people that you need to prepare for this and you need to be asking serious questions of your allegedly um you know elected representatives um and but then i'm the one having to answer questions about whether mm -hmm. my reporting undermines national security and puts the public at risk I mean, what you're saying, Kit, I mean, you know, it's quite terrifying in reality. And I mean, you know, I think, I mean, this 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 absurd assertion that, you know, you somehow a threat to national security. Indeed, this was a, uh, a pretext in some ways that was used by politicians to remove my parliamentary pass. All former members of parliament have a, have a pass to go to and from parliament if they wish. I've never been back to the godforsaken place, I've got to say, since I lost my seat, but the principle is is quite important. And they cited, I mean, the fact that I present a programme on Press TV about Palestine, but also the fact that I had said that Zelensky was backed by literal Nazis. And, mm. you know, that was seen as unconscionable. I mean, how does the environment in which you're operating now, Kit, compare to when you first started out on, on the road of, of investigative journalism? I mean, no, it's never been it's never been so hostile. And I mean, you, you see this with I have seen people who are, you know, full blooded, um, uh, you, know, are, you, know, are, 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 you know, undeniable, um, you know, you know, Russophobes, you know, who have been at this for years, um, you know, rate, you know um, stoking xenophobic conspiratorial yeah. fears about the threat of Russia, people like Mark Galliotti, um, and also, you know, the, the BBC's first uh, disinformation reporter, uh, Mariana Spring, um, a more accurate title than was surely intended. I mean, the, the, anyone who steps a foot wrong, quote unquote, on the narrative is branded, you know, a Vatnik, Putin apologist, useful idiot. I mean, this includes, yeah, yeah, as I say, this includes people who have, you know, multi-year, if not decade-long histories of engaging in, you know, openly xenophobic rhetoric about, about Russia, spewing all manner of lies about the nature of, you know, modern you know, Russian society and politics. Um, you know, the, the, you, you, you can never be quite as frenziedly, manically anti-Russian enough uh, to fit the narrative, you know, you 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 never can. And I mean, it, you know, nuance is as as much as it existed before, which is to say, not very much. Um, you know, that's completely out of the window. And yes, this is resulting in people getting added to kill lists. It's resulting in people getting banned and shadow banned. Um, you know, on, on social media. I mean, you know, in in the context of Mitrovets, which is you know a Ukrainian government as I say, hit list for people who offend the Ukrainian authorities. My dear friends and colleagues, Anya Parampol and Aaron Mate were recently added to it. I mean, it, it, I, I, you know, fast forward to um, you know, early, earlier this year, there was a major tech conference in Portugal to which the Grey Zone was invited. And at the last minute, because there were Ukrainian officials, including Zelensky's wife in attendance, our invitation was rescinded. Now, this might seem you know, fairly minor in the scheme of things, but there, there is an honour 
ongoing battle and a particularly aggressive one to ensure that the public only sees one very specific, very limited narrative of what is happening right now. And as I say, um, Julian Ropser, who is a, a German reporter who was once at one stage called Jihadi Julian for his, you know, appalling coverage of the Syrian conflict, supporting regime change and all the, the various CIA and MI6 backed um, jihadist groups, you know, raping and pillaging the country. He is pretty much embedded with Ukrainian forces and he has pointed out when they have failed spectacularly and vast amounts of them have been killed. Um, this has been sufficient for him to receive death threats on social media. You know, I mean, and yeah, this is this is someone on the pro side, right? And, and, and we also live in this perverse um, uh, inf informational milieu where the sole question that you are allowed to ask and indeed answer is oh well what do you support further arming ukraine and then if, if if your position is no for a variety of reasons that it's perfectly legitimate to oppose that then well you're letting russia win um you know i have been involved in anti-war activism for a very long time you know i i have been writing about the plight of the, the the palestinian people for over a decade now not once have i ever heard a single um, uh, pa Palestine solidarity activist ever propose shipping tanks and you know killing apparatuses to um, Hamas or to the occupied territories, and never have I ever heard someone who opposes such a measure <laughs> say, "Oh, well, you're letting Israel win." You know, I've never ever heard that, but it's what it is is the recurrent cul-de-sac argument to paint yeah. anyone who thinks, well, we should stop doing this and we should just calm it right down because the risk of World War Three and all-out war between the West and Russia is gaining with momentum. You know, every single day. You know, I, I, I recently, I think it was earlier today, there was a newspaper report about how NATO member states are considering sending troops formally to uh, fight in Ukraine if 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 Ukraine isn't given NATO membership. Now, this might even be lobbying, but you know, what an insane proposition. And this is not, not much more than a year after Biden said the idea that we're going to send ground troops, let alone send Ukraine um, offensive weapons, is, is lunacy. Incredible. Well, let, let, me, let me bring in uh, Patrick now, if, if I can. Um, and just uh, wonder, Patrick, whether you might give us the benefit of your thoughts on what uh, George and, and Kit have just said, uh, and maybe offer your reflections on how the BBC and, and other mainstream media outlets are reporting on Ukraine. Sure, thank you very much, uh, Chris, uh, for a chance to speak. Uh, I, I remember, I mean, there's a lot of different ways we could look at this, but uh, something that's really kind of at the forefront of my mind was uh, when I re realized back in 2012, when there was an effort uh, by the government, a ham-fisted effort, but an effort to remove press TV uh, from mm. the airwaves in Britain. And there was never a straightforward explanation uh, as to what uh, it was being removed for. Um, but at that point, there were you know, a lot of sort of big efforts, by, namely by the United States government um, previously, uh, to attack Iran or to position uh, Iran as a potential target. Uh, in in war, and it just you know when, with the proliferation of English language foreign channels, uh, starting like say 2007, RT got into the foreign English language market. Then press TV around the same time, um, there was a few others. Uh, China 
um, has had a couple of uh, projects uh, similar to that and all to varying degrees of success, but uh, tremendous success uh, by Iran with Press TV globally in the soft power game uh, in the English language market and RT undeniably incredible success. And it, you realize at that point, if there was a war to break out, and imagine if that is one of the potential sources of uh, information from the other side uh, in English language on, on a global media uh, scale to either Freeview Box or YouTube or uh, satellite um, or cable uh, in the U.S. and and how important that would be and how how incredibly uh, uh, you know dangerous that would be if there was no other counter narrative coming from an actual live war zone. And so imagine if, you know, we, we got a taste of that with Iraq, with embedded reporting, uh, is really a, a controlled media environment in, in the Iraq war. And, and you realize that, that how important that would be. I mean, imagine if the BBC was completely shut out if be, for a British audience, if they, you know, how would they feel about the BBC being completely shut out of a foreign uh, theater? Uh, ditto for CNN uh, and the major uh, U.S. networks as well. How would that feel? You know, you'd feel like you you wouldn't have all the information to be able to make some kind of an educated evaluation of what the true state of the conflict was. Uh, and so, when I saw RT not only be uh, shut down in the UK, in the US, uh, in France, but also the URL removed, RT.com, that 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 that's a new uh, level. There, a, a major threshold has been crossed there to to start removing urls because once it could be rt.com today it could be the gray zone tomorrow uh the whole url could be banned from the eu or 21st century wire or uh, some something like this and so you can now see the actual results of this okay if you speak to people in parliament uh chris i'm sure you've had your share of conversations now imagine and and people say well they're just uh you know anti-russian you literally have a situation in the united states in government in in the british government in some european parliaments where elected officials do not have access to the statements made by the russian foreign minister are not mm -hmm. up to date with the position of russia or uh, listening to russian defense briefings or official states position speeches and then they're carrying on uh, george uh, commented on uh, mr cleverly not being so clever it is literally that case right now they they are uh, working in a low information environment where they are marinated in the west just policy makers in the west they have the power of uh, you know how this war is going to be prosecuted they're working on a low information environment and they're making decisions they're they're dragging uh the country and uh, other partner countries into a, a conflict deeper and deeper and they do not even have any idea they cannot articulate what the russian position is they cannot articulate the true uh uh status of the the, the battlefield uh situation if you read british intelligence uh re what they release to the public it, it is almost a comedy show if you actually uh, go back and look at some of the past uh, uh, re release, public releases from British intelligence, it's so politicized. Nobody wants to be on that side where they're saying something that might, quote, hurt morale or hurt the war effort or, you know, damage the uh, Ukrainian uh, morale or NATO's morale. We, we are literally at war, but 
in everything but name. And so it, it's absolutely fatal in the information space to not have counter uh, narratives, to not have alternative narratives and analysis, because it means that our elected officials cannot, they, we do, and as a public, we do not have any uh, informed consent uh, with regards to how deep and, and how perilous uh, the, the slide to war is. So that, that's the most, to me, that's the most important thing. It's not merely about censorship now. It's much bigger. And it's in terms of the social media censorship, I could go, uh, you know, quite deep on that. I was also in the Twitter files. Uh, I found out after after the fact. And I was a little bit of I wasn't I wasn't so surprised. I was a little bit surprised just to see it. But mm. um, to see my my name and my account uh, on a blacklist as a suspected Russian you know, uh, a Russian agent or Russian account, and to realize that was being shared by the FBI, uh, the NSA, uh, the DA Department of Homeland Security, and then shared with big tech uh, platforms uh, to put me on a kind of uh, uh, banning list, uh, which was successful uh, on another a number of platforms. Um, but myself, many other journalists, many other activists, bloggers, and people like this. And to see how well coordinated this was, it started off with uh, countering uh, Russian disinformation uh, after the 2016 election, and then it was repurposed to countering election disinformation, and then countering COVID disinformation, and then vaccine disinformation, and now disinformation about the Ukrainian conflict. Okay, back to the Russian uh, 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 imperative. Okay. So, uh, so this is the whole of society approach. Kit, uh, was kind of alluding to this. He said, we're in a very dangerous place in history. Um, the, the information war the, the, the battle for the narratives are so important. You can now see where the real concern is, uh, from, from government who believe that everything is, is the battle space. This is the whole of society approach. Twitter is, in a, is a now official election infrastructure, according to uh, multiple U.S. agencies, and I would I would venture to say that they have the same programs in the U.K. They just haven't been exposed yet um, to to the degree they were with the Twitter files. Same at YouTube, same at Google, same at LinkedIn, uh, same at Instagram. Uh, the, mm -hmm. the, they're all they're all working more or less on a shared platform with troubled uh, uh, users that they share blacklists or passed around between government, the private sector, big tech, civil society organizations, NGOs, the, the Center for Countering Digital Hate, these types of NGOs have all sprouted up um, to work together with the mainstream media, with big tech, with government, and even university departments and the DFR labs, uh, the Atlantic Council, people like this, these NGOs are all working in Congress uh, with a gigantic censorship um, apparatus. And that's not even to talk about the Bellingcats of the world that have been, uh, you know, cutouts that have been basically uh, bolted onto uh, mainstream media who operate very similarly to the 7th, 7th Brigade in their recruitment, uh, uh, the ways that they recruit people to work for them. And now you have NAFO. NAFO is the largest uh, online troll army uh, ever in history and they have basically taken the 77th brigade model which is some people are kind of in the boiler room and the rest are volunteers uh, taken from professional 
capacities, working in finance, working as lawyers, working in politics, uh, working in media, and on their spare time, they're sort of doing their national service, if you will, uh, doing online information warfare, okay? Um, so this is, this is the battlefield, the battle space that, uh, the, the head of the British military, uh, uh, I believe, uh, the previous head of the British military talked about is that there is no war, there is no peace. It is a continuum. We're constantly in a state of conflict, um, and there's no beginning or end to the war. It's just a constant state, a, a spectrum, if you will. This is the way uh, this, these are in the papers that are presented at, at, at organizations like RUSI. Okay? The, these, these inform the policy going forward. So as Kit said, um, it, is, uh, it doesn't stop. It's full on all the time. Everybody is considered uh, potentially uh, an asset of foreign influence. Uh, and even if you intend to or not, if you if your narratives, if you're a blogger or you're a social media user or a journalist, if your narratives happen to be, if you share the same narratives as RT.com, you are then peddling Russian disinformation. Uh, forget about whether it's true or not. Forget about whether it's factual. And I will contend, and my thesis on this is that this is the road for disaster uh, for for Britain and for NATO. That um, the reason they are losing, uh, let's be honest, um, they are losing badly in this proxy war. And one of the reasons is they will continue to lose badly because they're working on a low information environment on this mm -hmm. side of the Iron Curtain. Okay, the new Iron Curtain. And it's, it, th there is no benefit other than a deeper quagmire uh, for NATO. Pro, uh, prosecuting this proxy war and a total disregard and a completely discarding of any diplomatic solution. So there's no military victory for Ukraine uh, or for NATO. And then there, there's absolutely, they precluded any, any diplomatic solution. So what are we left with? What is this? Just an open-ended, uh, slow grind of a proxy war uh, where our politicians have not thought it out. They're not opening dialogue with the other side. They're all dug in and too far invested to, to, to turn back. And whole political legacies are so much political capital sunk into this, this narrative uh, of Russia bad. And, uh, and the, the West has finally discovered the concept of international law, which is laughable after yeah. all of the various uh, egregious violations of international law, um, all the conflicts that we could just rattle off. And mm -hmm. so even for myself to have a, a, a conversation about UN Charter, uh, we hear about Article 51, the right to self-defense, but nobody's talking about Article 1, which is the right to self-determination. And if you look at the Donbass as a case study, and I've had this dialogue and we published uh, some excellent pieces on this. Um, the Donbass qualifies uh, under uh, UN Charter for statehood. It is a much stronger case than Kosovo. In fact, there's no comparison. They've done everything by the book. This is why Russia did not intervene militarily immediately. Um, the Donbass had to stand on its own two feet. Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republics had to form their own militia, protect their borders and their people, and form their own uh, autonomous government because they were cut off from Kiev in what's called lustration, but also physically cut off utilities. The uh, Kiev's uh, no longer paying you know, civil servant salaries and things like this. So you relinquish your claim 
to these territories and you open up the possibility for uh, autonomy plus a violent civil war, it it's absolutely qualifies under UN Charter. Okay, And in much better case, mind you, than uh, many other uh, uh, examples of this as well. So what you had was with Yugoslavia, the West or the NATO shattered the Helsinki final act, that there would be no change in the European borders. That, that was null and void at that point. And this opened the door for Crimea's uh, uh, independence referendum, and which wasn't the first referendum Crimea had in its history uh, post-1989, okay? So it, this opened the door for that and also for the situation in, in Donbass. For myself to have this conversation uh, at any level is is akin to, you know, uh, you know being a, a Russian uh, shill or uh, Russian disinformation. No, it's absolutely uh, an important conversation that needs to happen because eventually it's going to happen after a military conflict or or it's going to happen to avert a further uh, conflict. But it has to happen. But it's not happening in the West. And the ICC indictment against Vladimir Putin and another Russian official uh, with the uh, International Criminal Court in The Hague, a completely spurious, baseless case there's nothing, there's nothing, it has no merit whatsoever. It is a ridiculous charge, okay? And uh, Putin being the first, I, I, I'm, I've, I'm, I'm making a joke, of course, but Putin's the first white man ever to be indicted by The Hague. Uh, it's all African, black Africans, uh, and he's the first. Uh, Milosevic was across the road in the special tribu tribunal for Yugoslavia. So they finally, they've finally gone after a non-U.S. Uh, uh, tar target state that wasn't in Africa and indicted Vladimir Putin, which, again, precludes international negotiations because if you can't have negotiations in Switzerland because they might be bound or whoever's a signatory to, this, to The Hague, if they're hosting yeah. any talks, or it, it, it then precludes diplomacy. That's why they indicted uh, Vladimir yeah. Putin. So yeah. the, these are a few issues that we need to have, and we're not having you know, having these discussions in mainstream. This should be on the BBC. This should be in The Guardian. These should be high-level discussions in Parliament, uh, in Washington. It's not happening. This is not yeah. good. That's my concern, Chris. No, indeed. I mean, and you mentioned uh, in your contribution there, Patrick, the sense of countering digital hate. And if I, I might just abuse my position in the chair to uh, give a plug for... Palestine declassified because we've just recorded a, a program exposing, you know, who's behind uh, the uh, Center for Countering Digital Hate, what their real agenda is. So I'd urge uh, anybody watching this to, to look out for the Rumble link and, uh, and just to take a, a glimpse of that because it gives an insight really into uh, the uh, way in which the modus operandi of these sorts of uh, organizations, which, as you say, have been, have been springing up. Of course, another one, and you talk about the you know, this issue about um, a country so-called Russian disinformation, and there's an organisation called the, uh, well, the Institute for Statecraft, and an offshoot of that was the Integrity Initiative, which I'm sure you're probably familiar with, Patrick, that was uh, receiving millions of pounds of public money from the Foreign Office and from the Ministry of uh, Defence. And uh, whatever you think about, you know, counting Russian disinformation, that, that, that whole notion, whether that's fair or not, um, I've obviously got grave reservations about it for the reasons that you've already set out, Patrick. But what we discovered was that uh, they were diverting a lot of that money to attack the official opposition uh, when it was led by 
Jeremy Corbyn. And I was asking questions in the House. That's where we um, were able to uncover the fact that they were being given these multi-million multi pound annual grants. But when I was seeking to get you know, further information, uh, the uh, flow of information uh, stopped. And I was it, uh, the, the response from ministers was, well, they cited uh, national security as the excuse for, for not uh, providing that information. And what, what do you make about that, uh, Patrick, the fact that, you know, the public money, I mean, literally multi-million pounds have been thrown at these sorts of organisations to allegedly counter Russian disinformation. But then it's also being used for, for other, um, in my opinion, anti-democratic purposes. Yeah, they, they, well, the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, there's another one uh, we'll add to that list as well. But the Integrity Initiative, um, uh, hugely embarrassing. That exposure was hugely embarrassing because it gave the public a glimpse behind the curtain to see the coordination of uh, main, uh, mainstream media journalists, the biggest names from the Times, the Guardian, etc., um, and the sort of the ringleader being people like Bill Browder, these sort of these high profile uh, dissidents uh, working with the Foreign uh, and Commonwealth Office. So, um, so this was it was a network, if you will, and a lot of it was planting stories, anti-Russian stories. It's very important in this current conversation because that was in the run-up to this current conflict, and you could not have the public support for a proxy war unless you could build up an anti-Russian sentiment within the population. That was achieved uh, through the uh, 2016 election in the U.S. For, to convince the public, that, or at least half of America, uh, that the Russians helped put Donald Trump in in power, okay, and, and we know from the Durham report now, the the, the latest uh, release of the Durham report, that that idea or that sort of storyline uh, originated in the Hillary Clinton campaign, and then made yeah. its way through the FBI, and then quickly became institutionalized through the whole of government, and this opened the the, the floodgate for funding for all sorts of initiatives, some we know about, some we don't know about. The Integrity Initiative would be one of those types of um, uh, initiatives or a sort of a think tank, if you will. What it really is, it's about operationalizing propaganda and coordinating it um, on a level and also to get political outcomes from that. And we, we also found from the Integrity Initiative that they actually managed to uh, thwart uh, the uh, defense minister of, in Spain. Um, through sort of a fake news um, de defamation campaign that was uh, hatched right out of the Integrity Initiative itself. Yeah, but, that was Pedro Banos, wasn't it? Wasn't yes. that Pedro Banos? Yeah, yeah. That's correct. And 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 the transatlantic nature of this, um, it, it speaks to uh, the fact that this was a kind of a cutout for NATO. So uh, you know, coordinating between Canada, the United States, um, uh, the UK, and the European partners. And so this is really important because that level of coordination uh, right across NATO or the G7 countries, as an example, we also have to look at, uh, Chris, uh, Theresa May, the rapid response uh, mechanism at the G7 in, uh, I believe it was June of 2018, I, I believe, around there when Theresa May was, I might have the dates wrong, uh, when she was uh, prime minister. And that mandated that in the G7, for any important foreign policy story of consequence, all the countries had to streamline their narrative. The messaging had to be uh, completely uh, the same. So this is why you see 
very little in terms of uh, interesting uh, pushback or any challenges re regarding this the, the sort of situations we're in right now between between France, between Britain, between the U.S. No dissenting views allowed at all. Everybody has to be on the same page, and that means the media is going to be the mainstream media is going to be pretty much on the same page mm -hmm. as well. So everything's yeah. completely in lockstep. Yeah, no, indeed. Well, listen, for the last uh, sort of 20 minutes or so, uh, let's get George and Kit, uh, if they're still with us, back up on the on screen. Just have a, a, a roundtable uh, conversation. I'm not sure Kit, we might not still have uh, Kit uh, with us uh, now. I think he may have had to shoot off for another uh, engagement. But uh, perhaps, George, if we could maybe uh, just start the round uh, robin conversation um, by asking you and getting uh, Patrick's views as well on this is... Um, when and how did it all go so wrong? Because, you know, I remember back and as I was saying, you were the most outspoken and articulate uh, opponent of the illegal war in Iraq. And uh, I mean, you, you couldn't really turn the television news on without seeing you being interviewed virtually. You know, you were a kind of ubiquitous uh, a figure. Um, and as you were saying, I think, George, in your contribution, you, you know, people like you, people like me, Patrick, uh, Kit and so on, you know, we never get invited now, or very, very rarely anyway, to... To speak and when we are mentioned, I think you make this point. I mean, the only time I've been mentioned in uh, in dispatches, as it were, in the in the corporate media over the last sort of uh, three years or so since I left Parliament, it's, it's been you know very negative uh, stories. Mind there were plenty of pretty negative stories when I was in Parliament as well. Uh, but but um, why and when do you think it all went so wrong, George, in terms of the ability of these uh, you know contrary uh, voices to the prevailing establishment narrative, uh, you know, when, when were they sort of spiked, as it were? When were they cancelled, do you think, and why? Well, uh, that's one of the fronts, and I'll turn to it. But uh, hearing you talk about the Integrity Initiative and your role in their unmasking uh, reveals, as it were, another front. Uh, you see, if a country has a parliament, and it's a parliament even vaguely worthy of the name, then the opportunity always exists for even what they call a maverick member of parliament. The best in my lifetime was the late uh, Tam Dalyel, a very close friend of mine, who from the 1980s, from the minor strike, the, uh, the Falklands War, uh, the war and sanctions on Iraq, and many other things, was, if you like, uh, a constant source of irritation to the, the state which would otherwise have been able to go about its dirty business uh, uh, in the dark. Uh, and someone like Tam uh, would be in what you and I will recall very well, the table office, that uh, for non-parliamentarians is the place where you go to table your parliamentary questions. Tam practically lived in that room. And the very, very clever and helpful PhDs that worked there behind the desk, they saw their job as helping the member of parliament table his or her question in a form that would be impossible for the minister, for the department, for the government uh, to deny uh, the information. So you, you, you might come in with what to your uneducated eye 
looked like uh, a fair, kosher parliamentary question. And they would explain to you that if you just change this word, that word, substitute this for that, the minister will not be able to claim that this is a matter of national security and therefore we're not answering it. Uh, and I recall those days uh, very fondly indeed. But that requires there to actually be in the parliament at least one dissident uh, voice. And what we've now reached, as far as I can see, I don't pay as close attention to it as I, as I once did, but as far as I can see, there is not a single member of parliament in the entire House of Commons for the first time in all history, someone who is systematically working to expose and unmask the holes, the mistakes, or the venality of the official narrative. I used to, in my tours for people of parliament when I was a member there, pause at the statue of Charles James Fox, whom I always described as the greatest of all British parliamentarians. Charles James Fox, whilst a member of parliament, openly sided with the American colonists in their uh, incipient rebellion, later revolution and victory over the British uh, Empire. And on the day that France, the people of France, executed their king and queen, tabled a motion congratulating the people of France on their beheading of their king and queen, and looking forward to the day that the same fate would befall all the crowned heads of Europe, presumably including uh, our own uh, crowned head at the time. Now, we've gone from Charles James Fox to what? To literally zero dissent in the British Parliament. Therefore, no one's in the table office asking the questions that you did about the Integrity Initiative. The clerks are not required to exercise their PhD minds to find a way that will force the minister to disgorge information because nobody's asking for that disinformation. Uh, statements are made at the dispatch box, pronunciamento of great moment, and no one questions them, never mind opposes them. This is completely new, Chris, uh, in, in British parliamentary history. Even when I entered Parliament in 1987, there were dozens, scores maybe, of men and women of independent mind who would never have gone quietly into this uh, dark night that we are now in. And during the Cold War, uh, there were um, giant figures like Ziliakis, like uh, Foote, uh, Macardo, and others, who were regularly, uh, to use Patrick's phrase, regularly echoing the narrative of the other side. Not because the other side owned them or paid them, but because that's what they believed. They happened to believe the same thing in the way that any of us can agree that 
uh, a motor car has four wheels. You're not owned by the Ford Motor Corporation if you state that objective fact. The situation has never been more dire on the parliamentary level, and that is bound to have its reflection in the, in the mass media. If there's no one to interview in the parliament uh, who's taking a different line, well, the media are scarcely going to dig up superannuated members of parliament like you and me. Uh, mm. They would far rather, it would be far more logical for them to interview uh, Mr. or Mrs. X, uh, who, sit, who today in parliament said this. Uh, so it's partly uh, a function of that. It's partly mm. also a function of the fact that we did quite well. Uh, you were kind enough to say I was, uh, I, I was once on the mainstream media virtually every day. And perhaps I did it too well. Perhaps I contributed daily to a growing number of people who already saw that this Iraq business was going to end uh, badly. Uh, and uh, even if they did not go all the way with me and others of us who did make it onto the media, uh, they could see there was some sense in what we were saying. And nowadays, of course, I add in parenthesis, you cannot find anyone, anywhere, who will defend the Iraq war that was once a prevailing narrative as overwhelming as the prevailing narrative for Ukraine is today. I think I've told you, Chris, I went to a, a military function uh, organized by Jim Davidson, uh, the comedian, uh, who has a thing called Care After Combat which looks after these military vets that end up homeless on the street or behind bars in the jails. And uh, I strongly support that uh, organization. So I went to a military, Black Tie Do, in Park Lane, in the Dorchester Hotel. Uh, the man sitting next to me at my table was the then Conservative MP James Cleverly, now the Foreign Secretary, uh, and uh, Gavin Williamson, uh, later the uh, then the Defence Secretary, they were at my table. George Robertson, former head of NATO, former Defence yeah. Minister in Blair. So that's the company I was in. Imagine their consternation when in the break, a line as long as you could see had formed of former and even serving military officers to get a selfie with me and or mm -hmm. to say to me that they had once hated me, thought I was yeah. mental, but now agreed with me and now felt if only our leaders had listened yes. to the anti-war movement at that time. That spooked them, Chris. Yeah. That has yeah. spooked them that we so comprehensively have won the day over the Iraq war. They're not going to let it happen again. Well, we need to obviously then, uh, you know, push back even harder uh, from outside parliament and uh, I guess work hard to try and uh, elect people who who will ask these difficult uh, questions, uh, you know, will 
you know, properly represent the the people of this country because they're not being represented at the moment. And you know, what a what a state of affairs it is, George, in the country with the fifth biggest economy that veterans who shouldn't really be put into these conflict zones in the first instance, but they are, as we know, and they then find themselves homeless on the street when we have enough resources in this country to not just eradicate uh, street homelessness, but to actually eradicate poverty. And the situation, Patrick, in the United States, it's even sharper than that, isn't it? I mean, we're talking there about the, the wealthiest nation on earth, and yet the number of people you know, sleeping under bridges, I don't think there's a broad, Jimmy Dawson, there's not a bridge anywhere in the country where there are not homeless people living. What a, what a dreadful state of affairs. I mean, how have we got there, Patrick? I mean, it's uh, it literally a truly shocking, and, uh, you know, and it, it shocks me as well. Is you know, Why do we put up with it? Why do people put up with it? What do you think, Patrick? I, I, I think members of the military have always been cannon fodder, especially yeah. uh, especially in the modern era. Uh, and, you know, I'd say, say the last great generation, the World War II uh, generation, you could say the last great just war uh, where society would look favorably on uh, people who were veterans of that conflict uh, and World War I before it, um, even though it, World War I is completely insane. Um, nonetheless, it was seen as uh, uh, a necessary conflict to, you know, save the people of uh, Europe and the world from uh, fascism and tyranny, etc. Um, the, the Vietnam era uh, absolutely transformed that. And then the United States uh, establishment went through various uh, uh, moves and reconsolidation and, and messaging and, and public relations to try to make sure that didn't happen again, even so far as to uh, change the way that they actually prosecute uh, warfare. And it was seen as uh, that th this was going to be, you know, uh, overwhelming air power uh, and then, you know, fighting against um, rapid reaction forces, fighting against maybe lesser opponents. Um, the United States uh, has fought against countries that have no air defense uh, for all intents and purposes. And this is why, and I'm going to say this is absolutely why, uh, uh, the U.S.-NATO proxy war or U.S.-UK-NATO proxy war, because when we talk about NATO, it is effectively the United States and Britain. Everybody else is a junior partner. So uh, the U.S.-British NATO war against Russia uh, using Ukraine as the battlefield pitch is going horribly wrong because, uh, you know, there is nobody in the U.S. military establishment that has any experience fighting uh, combined uh, uh, warfare, combined armed forces warfare. And so th we, we literally don't have, NATO doesn't have such forces. Um, no one has experience. There's not anyone on the Joint Chiefs of Staff in the United States that has any experience in anything resembling the current theater. So how would they possibly know? They're just throwing money at it. They're throwing weapons at it, uh, recycling old Soviet-era uh, weaponry, uh, turning it into scrap metal and then backfilling it with uh, brand new gear uh, from the U.S., Britain or France or whoever. Germany as well has profited uh, from this from, in, in their defense sector as well. Sweden uh, profiting. So many other countries uh, that have done well out of this. And it's turned NATO, uh, which was meant to be a defense alliance, if you, you can argue it never was, but uh, turned NATO into a protection racket. That's all it 
that's all it's become. It's a, it's a, a sort of extra, take your local mafia, extrapolate that up to a global scale. This is what NATO has become. So the soldier, Chris, uh, in that scheme of things, isn't worth a whole lot. And if you really want us to, to, to look at this case study in Ukraine, which is horrific, look at the casualty numbers on the Ukrainian side, which is constantly being downplayed. Nobody wants to ever have a, a conversation about this. This should be a conversation on the floor of the House of Commons or Congress. Why? Because we will measure a conflict or a country's involvement in it against some sort of a moral standard. That's always been the case. But all of a sudden, it's no longer the case. When you're talking about 100,000, 150,000, 200,000 dead, 250,000 Ukrainian dead, not Russians, Ukrainian. Okay, some of them being press ganged into a military yeah. service. At at this point, it becomes an immoral conflict. What is the what's the ceiling for this? Is there an upper limit to this that the average British parliamentarian could take as they saying this is enough? In America, the magic number is fifty-six thousand. That's the psychological barrier of the to mm -hmm. uh, the soldiers who died in Vietnam over a ten-year period. You're talking about sixteen months. Ukraine yes. losing uh, the, the equivalent of what Iran lost nearly during the eight-year Iran-Iraq war, which is, in modern warfare uh, terms, uh, post-World War II, that is seen as the most egregious death toll of a, of a two-sided military conflict, Iran-Iraq, 19, in the 1980s. So this is, this is eclipsing this on scale, orders of magnitude. Where is the yeah. limit? There has to be a moral limit because if, if it, there's not, then we cannot, uh, we cannot uh, pretend to act on the world stage as, as an as a honest broker in any way, shape, or form. It just can't be. And this is, the, this is a moral crisis for the West no, right now. Well, look, in Britain, uh, in Parliament, um, as far as I can see, there, there are no voices on the Labour benches and certainly not on the, on the government benches who are calling for peace. Everybody's gung-ho. For war, but look, war is a racket, isn't it? And, and when we launched No to NATO, I, I quoted uh, from this book by Smedley Butler entitled War is a Racket. This was written back in the mid-1930s, and he set out how, you know, capitalist corporations actually profiteer out of war. I mean, George, are we led by psychopaths or what? Because, I mean, you know, you've got, and you mentioned cleverly, and... Uh, I thought you were, when you talked about a, a tweet, I think, uh, in, in your earlier contribution, I thought you were going to mention the tweet that he posted saying that, NATO, uh, that Ukraine's place is in NATO. It's like as if they seem, you know, gung-ho for third world war. I mean, are these people deranged? What's going on, George? Uh, well, they're definitely not James Bonds, as you've often heard me say. You and I spent enough time close enough to them, uh, 10 feet from them, uh, yeah. to know that they're more Austin Powers than uh, James yes. Bond. Uh, mm -hmm. and, but of course, one assumes, although I never myself found it, uh, that there is a dark heart uh, at the middle uh, of all of this that you and I would never get within 10 feet uh, of. And Therein may be the psychopaths. There are psychopaths, of course, on the political level, but most of them are, are, are vainglorious uh, fools, I think. 
who have uh, gone native. I mean, you mentioned the government benches and the labor benches, but the nationalist uh, benches and the liberal benches and the green benches yes, are true. all 100% for war. So we have, for the first time, I think, I think probably for the first time in history, we have a unanimous parliament. And that, of course, allows whoever, wherever that dark heart is, uh, to follow its uh, agenda without fear of contradiction, still less fear of disruption uh, to whatever their plan is. The more I listen to Patrick speak, the more convinced I am that we are no longer, in Oscar Wilde's words, two nations divided by a common language. We are not divided at all. The US and UK are uh, the, the, the biggest danger to the peace of the world. Uh, and it is one of the great mysteries, which one day I hope live long enough to uh, find the answer. One day we'll discover how it was that the European countries uh, on the ma European mainland went along with a US-UK strategy which destroyed them, destroyed their uh, economies, destroyed their place in the world, described what Macron called their strategic autonomy, which was minimal in any case, but significant. Uh, we talked about the Iraq war. France did not join the Iraq war. Neither did Germany join the mm. Iraq war. Uh, but uh, France and Germany are up to their neck in this war. Uh, and so uh, one day we'll know how and why uh, these European leaders were dragooned uh, as uh, junior partners, as Patrick properly put it, uh, into a NATO war drive. I'm afraid the head of the snake is a now inseparable US-UK head of uh, that, that snake. And venomous it is. It is our misfortune, for we cannot uh, invent a new nationality for ourselves. We cannot live in an imagined place or an imagined time. We are doomed to live and, mm. uh, and work in, uh, in that headspace of that head of the snake. And that means we, we have a very uphill struggle. But let's not lose yeah. hope because we are, uh, we are making progress. The fact that 300,000 people watched our last meeting, and I hope yeah. uh, the same number at least watches this meeting. We are reaching people. Uh, and as long as we have the space available to do it, we must keep on doing so. So uh, I do hope this will become a fortnightly thing. Uh, Chris, yes. uh, a NATO no, meeting. We, we, we certainly do need to, to look to ensure that we continue to provide that alternative narrative because people are starved of that, aren't they, as we were saying earlier on yeah. in the mainstream media. But it seems to me, uh, Patrick, maybe I'm a dreamer, I don't know, but I get a sense that there's a growing disconnect between the ruling, maybe there's always been a, a disconnect between the 
the ruling elites uh, and the wider general public a degree of uh, cynicism. But it, I get the sense that that's, that's growing. And obviously we need to uh, try to ferment that, as it were, with, with these sorts of discussions that we're having uh, this evening. I mean, one of the questions I was going to put to, uh, to Kit, if he was able to, to uh, stay with us, is, is the, you know, the role of the state in, um, in actually, uh, you know, promoting fifth columnists within a kind of progressive uh, movement. And of course, Kit famously outed Paul Mason, somebody who I was uh, to some extent in awe of as a working class former bricklayer, you know, um, and I remember sharing, uh, getting to the point where I was sharing platforms with, with this guy who I used to watch on Newsnight. He was the economics editor on BBC's uh, Newsnight. And, you know, I was, I was quite you know, impressed by him, I must say, and uh, particularly his reportage of the, of the Syriza movement in, in Greece. And then, then Kit, uh, you know, outed him as someone who was, you know, working um, alongside or indeed for the intelligence services and uh, this was somebody who had you know portrayed himself as, as a progressive kind of a lefty as it were but for um, i don't know when you know when maybe it always been an asset of the security service i don't know but uh, certainly you know he was in his in his latter period how in your experience uh patrick uh, and maybe george has got a view on this as well i mean how widespread do you think the uh the use of these sorts of fifth columnists to so division within, you know, movements like ours, as it were. And we need to be mindful of that. I'm sure there'll be people, you know, coming in and see, seeking to, to divide it. Because I guess one of the things that the elites, that the establishment are most frightened of is a mass movement. This is one of the things, of course, I think, you know, why they moved heaven and earth to smash the, the Corbyn uh, project. But what it has been inspiring to see over in the States there is how the Rage Against the War machine has been uniting left and right, actually. I mean, we can agree... To agree where we agree, and we agree that you know nuclear war is a thoroughly bad thing, and let's do everything we can to unite to to stop that from happening. We can have disagreements on lots of other things, disagreements maybe on other areas of so of, of foreign policy, and certainly on so domestic uh, policy as well. But what's your sense, Patrick, as I say, about the, the you know the use of these uh, sort of uh, fifth columnists to to divide movements like ours? It's a really good point, uh, Chris. I noticed a change after the Iraq War. Uh, you know, talk about the the big demonstrations and the the level of solidarity against the Iraq War. It was really all encompassing um, on the political left, and you probably had some libertarians in there. Um, and, but so it was pretty pretty solid, actually. The, it started to fragment. I noticed there's two issues. One of them was the war in Syria. Uh, no, Libya, and then Syria. And what happened was uh, successfully somehow, and the Palestine issue is, is, is central to this as well, because you saw a split uh, in people, all, all parties that would support uh, the Palestinian issue breaking up over Syria. Is very interesting, and uh, the I would put the Guardian and a few other uh, media actors, and then writers within those uh, those publications to work to split the left along identity politics lines. Okay, there's different ways that they've done this. Um, one of them, as well, is with the uh, the Kurdish issue uh, in Syria, the very mm -hmm. successfully as well, but also um, more broadly uh, portraying this as an international cause for you know human rights 
um, or against uh, authoritarianism. And if you look at the, 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 the dynamic now, the dichotomy, the new paradigm, the new binary, if you will, uh, in the Cold War it was communism and capitalism. Now it's, they've successfully repeated, rebuilt this to now as authoritarianism versus democracy. So this is an outgrowth of the responsibility to protect doctrine. Um, so the uh, Samantha Power is, is was the sort of emissary of this uh, under the Obama administration. So with Syria, you saw all of a sudden the left being chopped up into little respective pieces and the solidarity that was once there to oppose something like the Iraq war all of a sudden became mired in all sorts of little tangential uh, wedge yeah. issues. And so, and and then you also saw the support for Palestine also fragment um, potential because there was infighting between these groups. Stop the War Coalition all of a sudden transformed as an organization to the point where they did, they didn't have a word to say about Julian Assange for years. Um, all of these groups that uh, Amnesty International, the National Union of Journalists, uh, uh, Reporters Without Borders, they didn't jump on the uh, the bandwagon to support Julian until after until the, the his his trial at the Woolwich uh, Crown Court at Belmarsh Prison. At that point, it became a, a major media event, and they all felt pressured. And the Swedish sex case was basically dropped for the third time. Yeah, and they felt it was safe because. Yeah. Again, that's a that's a kind of um, uh, feminist issue. He he became a a, a sort of uh, an evil character amongst feminists yeah. because of that. So you see how the media, through through yeah. their power and through and politicians not wanting to touch certain issues yeah. because of various other wedge issues and tangential issues, n no solidarity. So no. then, wh where's the opposition at that point? It's it's not it's not together. It's not solid. So I, I've often looked at this and tried to study and understand how this is how this has happened over the last yeah. ten or fifteen years. And I think it's really important. And now we're seeing the culmination of it with Ukraine, where it's become the the Democratic Party is now the party of war in the United yes. States and labor uh, in it's Britain. They're absolutely yeah. in lockstep, as you said. There's no. Uh, plurality of opinion at all on on this Ukraine issue in, in British politics. So yeah. um, this this is the culmination, I think, of a long process that I yeah. think is very it's been very manipulated, and they've been very dedicated to the cause of basically um, subdividing and compartmentalizing political opposition. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, one of the most disappointing, and there were lots of disappointments that I that I had in that 2017 to 2019 Parliament when I was. I was re-elected after losing my seat in 2015. I was the only MP. I don't want to kind of blow my own trumpet or anything, but I was the only MP that was consistently speaking up for Julian. I couldn't believe it that I was the only one. And I actually remember putting down a motion, and it was only signed by four other MPs. I mean, what an absolute outrage that is. Uh, you know, it's uh, truly, truly it did shock me, I've got to say. It really did shock me. And, I, I, you know, I, I mean, even Jeremy, I, I think he had made one statement. I, I mean, I don't know, you know, well, two more of them are speaking up now, but I mean, when when they had a bit more influence, you know, they were just they were silent about it. Diane Abbott, who was the uh, shadow home secretary, I think she made one statement in the house when Julian was dragged from the Ecuadorian uh, embassy. But, um, but yeah, Chris, are they not terrified? First... They're terrified of the press, and if, well, the, if, yeah. if the media aren't but, but on my... the politician side, they don't even want to touch it. No, you're right. Terrified. You're right. 
You're absolutely right. But my view has always been, and I know George subscribed to this as well, but look, if you've got a platform, if you have an elected platform, being a, I mean, one of the things I was doing was, was touring the country promoting democracy inside the Labour Party. And I used to make the point, look, if you're a, if you're a member of parliament, it ain't, don't treat it as a job or a career. It's not a job or a career. It's a privilege to be a, a member of parliament. And your role is to represent the people that's elected you. Uh, and if you want a job or a career, go and get a job on a building site like I used to do or go and work in an office or something. If you want a career, being a parliamentarian isn't a career. However, in reality, it is. That's how they treat it. And, uh, you know, they, they do very well out of it. But, George, uh, when, I mean, you know, when Julian was uh, going through the travails of the, of the, uh, the trumped up uh, Sweden uh, charges in Sweden, I can't remember how many MPs there were that were jumping on the Labour MPs as well, jumping on the bandwagon, signing motions, calling for Julian to be uh, extradited. Uh, and as I say, <laughs> I was literally the only one that, that, that was speaking up. But, but you've never suffered from a, uh, a solidarity deficit, as I was making clear at the outset. And you certainly uh, spoke out in support of Julian when it was difficult to do so. And one of the points I've always made is, look, solidarity only really counts. It's only really important when it's difficult not just when it's easy, but that point, just uh, George, perhaps in conclusion, because we've been going for nearly an hour and a half now, but nobody really want to say anything about that. But just the point that, that, that Patrick was speaking about there in relation to these uh, state sponsored fifth columnists that, that, that seek to divide movements like ours. Uh, what's your thoughts about that? And is it worse now than it's ever been or what? Well, uh, first of all, I think it's been a tremendous meeting and congratulations to those that organized it. Uh, very, very high level of discourse. Uh, lucky are the audience who will uh, see this program and uh, roll on the, the next one. Yes, even in the time of Charles James Fox, there were government agents infiltrated into the popular mu uh, movements of that time. Uh, nascent uh, chartist type uh, movements, uh, movements against the deleterious effect of mechanization of land enclosure and so on. So there have always been government spies and agents uh, deep in the, uh, in the population to uh, report back at least on what is being said, planned, done, uh, but also in the form of provocateurs uh, to encourage courses of action uh, that will uh, ultimately discredit the movement uh, that is being infiltrated or make easier for the state to crack down on them uh, and so on. Uh, so I don't think it's anything new. I think there are more of them now, though I liked Patrick's dichotomy of... Uh, I think he said there's an officer class, a boiler room, uh, but there's a lot of volunteers uh, who will do the bidding of that officer class, uh, even without asking for a wage uh, for yeah. it. Uh, there are a lot yeah. of sheep uh, around, and it only takes uh, one sheepdog to uh, corral a very large number of sheep, even on to the final uh, journey to the abattoir. Uh, they they tamely uh, climb the ramp uh, yeah. and head off to their death. Uh, but there are more of them now uh, because the state is spending more money on it. Mm. When there was a Tam DL or a Chris Williamson hovering around the table office who might ask 
uh, how is this all being funded, uh, then the state had to be a little bit more careful, but they no longer have to be careful. And again, as Patrick said, there's what we know about and what we don't know about. Yeah, there is, after all, a gigantic secret vote to the British intelligence services, which none of us, first of all, it isn't even a vote. Uh, I never cast any vote in secret. Neither did you. They call it a no. secret vote. The only thing it really is, is a secret. How yeah. much money uh, the state is giving to the security services and with which and through which all kinds of crimes against our own people, never mind the people of other lands, uh, might very well be being, being committed. Uh, so I think the state's putting more money into it. Uh, the social media age that we are now deeply into has, of course, given us vast opportunities that we would never have had before. Uh, when I started in politics, Chris, you had to run off a Gestetner machine. Yes, uh, yes, I remember. An A4, <laughs> yeah. an A4 yeah. piece of paper, then cut it into four pieces, then go out onto the street and find someone gullible enough to take a leaflet off your hands. Now yes. we announce at the touch of a button our gatherings and very large numbers of people can attend. So uh, these are great new opportunities for us. Therefore, they are great new threats uh, to the prevailing orthodoxy, to the powers uh, that yeah. be. Uh, and so uh, the, the use of provocateurs, spies and so on uh, is, uh, is obvious and probably growing. We must be as alert yeah. as we can, but not to the point of paranoia paralyzing us. Uh, after the triumph of the Russian Revolution, it was exposed that no less a person than Lenin's own private secretary had been an agent uh, of, uh, of the Tsarist uh, bureaucracy and had reported yeah. everything that Lenin had ever done. And Lenin's response to it was, well, he did a really good job uh, as the secretary. So if he was also informing uh, the enemy, fair enough. And in the end, we triumphed and they lost. Yeah. I think that's yeah. the proper attitude to it. Absolutely. I mean, and I guess we all should also maybe take it as, as a compliment as to our uh, kind of effectiveness, really, that, you know, they're the paying us the, the attention that, that they are. Listen, let me let me thank our speakers this evening, Patrick Henningsen, uh, Kit Karnberg, and obviously George Galloway. Uh, can I just also encourage people to check out the No to NATO website, notonato.org. On there, you'll see a petition that we've launched, a parliamentary petition, calling on the government to invoke Article 13 of the North Atlantic Treaty to withdraw the United Kingdom from NATO. If we can get to 10,000 signatures, it will require the government to give a formal response. So it's important that we get as many people to sign that, I think, as we possibly can. We know what the response is going to be, of course, but it gives us another avenue to uh, promote our cause uh, and to expose the warmongering attitude of the government. If we can get to 100,000 signatures, then the backbench committee in the House of Commons 
uh, can call a debate. They're not obliged to do so, but there could be a debate. Now, again, we know what the outcome of that debate will be, but what it does do, if there were to be such a debate, it gives us the opportunity uh, for our supporters to put pressure on, to lobby parliamentarians, and it also gives us a chance to expose them uh, as the warmongers that they are. So I'd urge people to check that out, notonato.org. Uh, also check us out on social media as well. We're on, we're on uh, Twitter, again, you know, at no to, to NATO. Give us a, a follow there and help us to promote the cause. Look, the establishment, the ruling elites, they've got power because, you know, they've got lots of access to massive resources. But we've got power if we stand together in solidarity. And that is a power that they are incredibly frightened of. And we... If the masses do link arms and, and stand to, together, we will be an unstoppable force. So I'd urge uh, anybody who's not already a supporter of uh, Nota NATO to check out the website, sign the petition uh, and become a supporter uh, and to share this, uh, uh, this uh, link to this discussion that we've had this evening and watch out for further discussions that we'll be having. We're hoping to organise these, as uh, George was saying, on a fortnightly basis. So thanks everybody for watching. Uh, this is Chris Williamson signing out. See you again. Cheers.